0: John goes out into the great outdoors and has these beautiful vistas and lovely sunsets, I live in the basement.
1: <laughs>
0: they keep me in dark spaces, and I only turn the lights on for a few milliseconds at a time. Um, so I'm really sort of interested in things that are beyond our range of perception because they happen very fast. So uh, I call this seeing at the speed of sound because all of the light we... Uh, use certainly travels faster than that. Um, I'm actually interested in events that happen on a time scale uh, at about the speed of sound, so things that are moving Mach 1, Mach 2, things that occur so quickly that they're outside our range of perception. Um, The human eye can only resolve things on a time scale to a certain point. We've got a persistence of vision of about a uh, a tenth of a second or so. Um, So things that happen too fast just sort of blend together into something we can't see the individual aspects of. Um, I'm interested in things that happen really, really quickly, and there's, I think, really kind of an intrinsic beauty in a lot of things that go on in everyday events around us, and that's kind of what uh, inspires me in all this. I can't say I'm an active researcher like John is. I'm a teacher. I used to be a photographer, and I was a teacher. I don't get much time to do my own work, Um, I see my role not necessarily as doing research, but hopefully I can do something to inspire some of the people um, who are going to do research in the future. Now the image we're talking about is the blast wave one up there, it's up in the corner. I'll talk a little bit about what we're doing this a little bit later. One of the things that um, I think about in the photography transient events are the things we have to consider are the three things that I've listed here, method, moment, and duration. Now, we obviously use some equipment and some techniques that are a little bit outside the realm of what a normal photographer might. Um, And how you look at something is certainly important. Um, We have to be very, very picky about the moment at which we look at something, so that when is important, because things happen and are over very, very quickly. One of the events that I have my students photograph, the entire duration of the event is probably about, oh, two-tenths of a millisecond. The uh, entire event is over in that time. So the um, when is important. But probably what's most critical and the thing that a lot of people don't think about is not just how you look and when you look, but how long you keep looking. Because if you look for too long at any one point, that, I mean, that, that event moves and smears enough that, again, we can't discreetly resolve it from all of the things going on around it. So high-speed photography is very simple. Method, moment, and duration. How, when, and how long. Those are the only things you have to have to really think about. Um, now, high-speed photography, I should give us a little bit of context because this means different things to different people. When we're talking about still images, like I've got for the, uh, the blast wave, we're talking about exposure times of less than a thousandth of a second. Um, and they can be substantially less than that in many cases. Um, If we're talking about motion pictures, we're talking about framing rates or, or sequences of pictures that are made at generally greater than 250 frames per second. Now, this contrasts to your normal television video rate, which is 25 frames per second. So we're looking at taking pictures at 10 times or more greater than the normal acquisition rate and then playing them back at a normal playback rate, which allows us to expand time. Uh, by a factor and understand things that are actually that are going on and see some of the fine detail that normally just passes us by. This would be an example of a, a still uh, photograph made with an exposure time probably somewhere on the order of uh, three or four thousandth of a second. For many of us, that seems like a very short period of time. For me, that's not really the case. I think I'm suffering from late-onset attention deficit disorder. <laughs> Anything that now lasts more than about two or three milliseconds, I'm kind of over it. Um, I'm actually more interested in the realm of things that happen on the time scale where you need exposures on the order of a millionth of a second to freeze something. If we had the light on any longer, in this case that's a 22 caliber bullet simply going through a soap bubble, any longer than about a millionth of a second or so, the fine detail of the shock waves and things that are around that bullet would be smeared and unrecognizable. The The bullet itself wouldn't be sharply rendered. Um, So I'm actually interested in those things that happen on these kinds of timescales for still images. Now as much fun as stills are, um, I I will openly admit to being a bit of a geek, I will also openly admit to being a bit of a fan of the MythBuster guys, they got way too much time and way too much money and I want their job. stuff that happens fast is a little more fun when it moves and so most of the rest of what we're going to talk about here are things that are moved. Now on one end of high-speed photography are those kinds of things that just have us look at have us let a little different look at everyday events Um, this is only slowed down by a factor of about 25 or 30 times or so Everybody's seen this sort of event happen in real time. When you slow it down and take it apart, you learn that the dog's right on the mud. The mouth just sort of doesn't open up until he gets there, and when he does, he doesn't miss that tennis ball. And fire and He's just absolutely right there on top of it. From this particular sequence, we're not necessarily extracting a lot of scientific data, but we're having a bit of fun. And I think that's one of the things we have to keep in mind, that from my perspective, as a teacher, if it's just about data, 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 homework, 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 assignment, 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 the students are going to walk away. You've got to keep a little bit of that sense of fun and that sense of adventure and whimsy in it to keep people interested. And photography is such a powerful communication tool. Um, that it's it's good to use it for, that sort of thing. Um, I've helped out a few students do some projects for uh, independent student films and that sort of stuff. This next one really probably just sort of sums up my opinion of reality TV in, in a much more eloquent way than I could ever say with words. But again, when we look at what happens here, the way I think there's some really some beautiful things going on in the natural processes of the way that that things on that time scale happen. And you start to look at the way some of those particles and things float around there. I actually think that this is kind of the fun aspect of it, and this is part of what's still in chance. We'll get to stuff that's a little bit more about data here in just a second. There is interesting stuff going on around us all the time, and this is one of the things I try to use to inspire my students. One of the challenges as an educator is the current state of occupational health and safety in Australia. They have gone mad. And if you want to do anything with students, you have to write 26 pages of risk assessment and make sure that you're not doing anything dangerous. So my challenge is to find events that happen on a very fast time scale that nobody can possibly get hurt with. <laughs> and that still teach us something about uh, some of the realities of the world around us. So we take a look at something as simple as a soap bubble. When a soap bubble bursts, it actually doesn't collapse as many of us might think. A soap bubble bursting simply unwraps without really losing its shape. This actually gives us some information about the way uh, liquid membranes and surface tension works and that sort of thing. And there are people that are actually interested in that sort of thing from more than just a visual standpoint. But this is an event It's easy to create. It happens on a very, very fast time scale. So to get my students to engage with this is something that's on the scale of events they might have to do industrially. It has relevance. I actually haven't figured out a way that a student can actually hurt themselves bursting a soap bubble yet. But if they can, can, I'm sure one of them will find it for me. Um, Now, I take this a step further. Just a picture of the barbecue on a sunny day. In addition to things that happen very, very fast, I've got an interest in gas dynamics and flow visualization of processes and fluids. So let's not only make them move fast, let's make them transparent. scientific photographer's job is to see things. If there's something going on and we can't see it for some reason, it's our job to get a picture of it. So this example just of the heat rising off the barbecue on a sunny day reflected on that shadow on the wall is a very, very simple example of the kind of technique that I use to visualize some of the things that go on in very fast gas flows. That image of what we call the heat rising from there is actually caused by a change of refractive index of the warm air, the hot air versus the cool air around it, and it bends the light rays a little bit differently casting that shadow on the wall. It's not actually a photographic image, it's simply a shadow from a very, very small light source. That's a fairly strong disturbance. If any of you have ever put your hands over the coals on the barbecue, you know that it's pretty hot. That heat that's coming up there is, is is pretty intense. We have to look at things that are a little bit less intense than this and traveling on a very, very fast time scale. So, Um, The basic, we won't have a a lesson in optics here, but just to give you a basic appreciation of how the uh, blast wave image was created that I've got there. Essentially, I've got an optical system using a couple of uh, uh, telescope mirrors, a couple of slits, and a razor blade to cut off some light at one end that I create a field of, of truly parallel illumination when I put something that's got a disturbance that's a change of refractive index, like hot air, dense air, a different gas, something like that, into this parallel field of light, it selectively deflects some of those rays a little bit differently. Down at the other end here, where I've got camera and knife edge, I can now cut off some of those rays that have been deflected and enhance that shadow effect. And I can make this actually quite sensitive. So in contrast to Uh, what we just saw with the barbecue, you can set this up so that something is boring as somebody's hand in the room, not great art going on here. Um, That's what it looks like to us every day, but when we visualize it with this sort of optical arrangement, we actually see that there's a plume of warm air rising up from the body. Now, that's only a couple of degrees difference in temperature. That can be made very sensitive. We're not seeing the heat itself. This is not an infrared picture. We're simply seeing the fact that that warm air has a different refractive index and bends light a little bit differently than the other air around it. And this is the principle, then, that I use to create the kinds of images that we've gotten with the blast wave range there, for example. Something as simple as a candle being, candle being snuffed out. When you look at it with this method and slow it down with high-speed photography, I just think there's a lot of beauty in the natural flow and turbulence and structures that are formed. And as that additional blast of air comes along, the way that some of that additional combustion heat and gases curl up over the flame. These are things that, that I think have a great deal of artistic value. I won't call myself an artist because I didn't create them. I'm just really picky about how and when I look at them and for how long I look These are things that are going on around us all the time. and. This gas dynamic stuff, I think, is just really fascinating when you get to see it move, and this is what really excites me. After many, many years of doing this, I'm still excited about scientific photography, not because I'm going to have papers published somewhere, but because it lets me see things. It feeds my curiosity about the world, and at some level, I'm still sort of just a kid bumping around in a toy shop having some fun. Now, if we take that same soap bubble by this system, we can see not only the way that it bursts, but we can actually look at what's going on inside. By putting a little bit of carbon dioxide in this, we can actually look at the way that then the contents of that are dispersed, what sort of mixing goes on when that structure actually collapses. Now, a soap bubble is a very simple thing. I'm not gonna get any Nobel prizes for bursting a soap bubble, but you can extrapolate that to studies of mixing um, and when you've got uh, structures that rupture or collapse, things like that, on a somewhat larger scale. And again, what I'm trying to get across to my students here are some ideas about how you might go about visualizing things that are actually occurring that are normally, invis- that, that are normally unseen to us. Now, classically, these kinds of images have been done in black and white, um, and this is simply the flow from a, a backpacker stove. Black and white, Uh, monochrome images historically have got a a great deal of uh, history, excuse me. But um, you can do these things in color by changing a little bit the way you cut off some of that light at the business end of the optical system. Now the colors that are put in here are purely subjective. They're determined by the kind of cutoff filter that I put in here. Um, but, they do help us visualize things sometimes a little bit more than black and white does because the eye is more sensitive to changes in color than it is to changes in tone. So they do give us a little bit of information. This to me is like a major geek's lava lamp. Um, I could just put this on and sort of watch this for hours. I find it very, very soothing. But that's not only the heat, that's also the combustion gases that are rising from a flame. And again, those are the kinds of things that we never, uh, never see. The choice of colors there are purely subjective. This communicates some information about what's going on in the flow of that. But I think it's got quite a high aesthetic value as well. And in studies of flow, visual, flow visualization, I think photography crosses the boundaries between technical aspects of science and the visual aspects of art very, very well. It's one of the things I find really appealing about it. We look at simple something as simple as a match being struck, slow it down, look at it with a color method and it becomes an event that actually really is quite enchanting in my opinion. Um, This has got great application in things like combustion studies because we can see not only the heat that comes from something that's burning but also the fact that the combustion gases themselves have a different refractive index and therefore bend light differently than the air around it. Again, the colors that are introduced here are a little bit subjective. However, with this particular arrangement, because they're oriented in a certain way, we can take that image apart and actually say something about what direction that light has been deflected uh, as determined by what color we actually see in the image. So there is some diagnostic information that can be in here. One more picture of some combustion. Um, row of matches just igniting which to us would happen very very quickly again we can actually see the advancement of the the sort of the ignition front in a a material that's actually quite flammable, Uh, burns normally very rapidly, this event would be over in our perception and we wouldn't have been able to take apart anything that's going on and again I'm trying to stick with things that most students aren't going to hurt themselves at with um, too dramatically so I'm just fascinated by actually slowing things down and looking at things like this on a completely different time scale. We'll move on from that and talk a little bit now about what all that means in regard to the image that we see here, which is the blast wave image from last year. The cloud that we see in the center of this is actually the combustion um, gases from a small little red cap that you put in a toy cap gun. Anybody who's a parent knows what these things are. The little rockets you get with a red cap on the end and children use them to annoy parents Mm -hmm. because they make a very loud noise. Well, that explosion creates, of that little tiny uh, pyrotechnic charge in there, creates some combustion gases and things that are that cloud there in the center. And then the circle that's moved out from that is actually a compression wave that is moving slightly faster than the speed of sound from this small blast. So... The field of view of that is only about 300 millimeters in diameter. The entire transit of that wave from the center of the picture out to the picture would occur in less than half a millisecond. It would be gone. The event would be completely over. Um, this was done with a system that the, the, the color that's put in here is purely subjective um, and uh, has got really no... Uh, indication of any of the compositions of things going on in there. It can just tell us that there are differences in the composition of the gas. But I'm really fascinated by the blast wave itself and the fact that it reflected off the surface below it, and we've got now a reflection coming up uh, following that wave, illustrating that basic principle they always talk to us about in physics. Angle of incidence equals angle of reflection with wave behavior. So it becomes a very, very straightforward illustration of, of what they're trying to teach us on a physical level. Um, now, that blast wave is simply a very, very rapid compression of the air. It's not, you can't really think of it as a wind tra- uh, propagating out from this, but it's an area of higher temperature and pressure than the air around it that's traveling faster than the speed of sound. So it would be much like taking a rope, giving a shake, and this translation of this high-pressure, high-temperature Uh, area is what propagates through the air. Since air at high pressure or high temperature has a different refractive index, it bends light differently than the air around it, and that's what I've used the system to pick up here and see. Now to give you a little bit of appreciation of what's actually going on here, we'll look at this image as it moves, this time in black and white. It's a little t- this is only being taken at about 30,000 frames a second. That's the expansion of that blast wave and the, the bouncing of things off of surfaces around it. All of that other stuff is simply combustion gases. Because that first wave happened fairly quickly, we'll have a blast wave from this other one who hits here in just a second. Um, we've slowed this down by a little over a thousand times. In order to be able to study this event and see what actually it is that goes on. And again, that wave that propagates out is simply a compression wave that changes the refractive index of the air. And this system allows us to visualize them. I've developed a real interest in shock waves. I think they're fascinating. Um, and one of the challenges is to create those shock waves in ways that, once again, are safe. They're shock waves from things like large explosions, shock waves from projectiles moving above the speed of sound. All things which really don't lend themselves much to a classroom environment. Um, Explosions in the classroom are a bit of a no, no, no no. The thought of taking half a dozen of our 17 and 18 year old students who are Busy texting and plugged into their iPods. <laughs> Putting them in a dark room with a loaded gun? I don't think so. <laughs> um, so, we have to come up with some ways to do things that are a little bit safer. So, I've developed a simple shock tube now which lets us generate shock waves from a simple bursting balloon. Um, now, these aren't events that have got any great quantitative significance. But they are things that happen on a time scale that our graduates might encounter when they go out into the industry. If they get into applications where they're doing uh, airbag testing, crash labs, uh, military, um, DSTO type applications, those those sorts of things, you run into having to photograph events that happen at the speed of sound and faster. So my motivation for some of this is to try to get the students to engage on a safe level with things that are relevant to what they might encounter in the industry. The other part of it is that I just actually find them visibly quite beautiful, quite intriguing. Now, the shockwave will come in there from the left. It will be the gray front that, that advances across the uh, across the field there. When it reflects off that surface, we start to see that we get all sorts of different shapes of reflections. Those waves reinforce and destroy each other um, according to the things we were taught. <clears throat> Basically, um, in... in classical sort of Newtonian physics. This is simply created from a long piece of pipe with a balloon bursting in one end um, at the point of rupture of that pipe, that pulse of pressure that comes from the bursting balloon down the length of the pipe coalesces into a very, very clearly defined shock front, which is that gray bit that's moving across there. Now that one, in my opinion, wasn't particularly artistic, not a lot of things going on there, but if we modify the nature of the reflector that these go into a little bit here. Um, I actually think there's some naturally occurring art that goes on. This happens, it's gone in the flash of an eye, but um, I think the patterns and structures that occur from these natural phenomenon are things that I never could have dreamed up and thought of myself. Um, they're instant transient art. I think they're beautiful. Um, so they have the double advantage of, of being something that's relevant to what our students might run into when they get out there in the industry, but I just find them visually enchanting, and that helps keep the interest up a little bit. One more look at a slightly different um, structure there. And again, um, these kinds of things are studied seriously um, by people with uh, a little bit more uh, hardware and a little bit more funding than I've got. I've created these with a device that I built for about $200. There's a gentleman up at the Defense Force Academy that's got a device that does this that cost him a quarter of a million dollars. Um, And he does quantitative work that relates to uh, aircraft aerodynamics, uh, aerospace studies, that sort of thing. Shock waves can be used to study the behavior of things like airfoils Um, and and shapes of projectiles, that sort of stuff. Now, not just important for the military, it's nice to know that the airfoil that's on the plane that you're gonna fly home to see your family on is not going to fall out of the sky. And that's where studies like this can actually be of some value. These are all things that happen at speeds that are are outside our normal range of perception. So, that's a little bit of a look into kind of the world that I'm into. Like I said, I'm admittedly a, a geek um, I like spending a lot of time in dark rooms, making abrupt noises with hot gases, much to the chagrin of my wife. Um, and for any of you who might want some closure on what happened at the beginning of, the, of this uh, this little adventure in high-speed photography, um, yes, one more time, yes, Hurley did get to come out of the pool, um, He did get a snack after a a hard day of work. We've all 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 certainly been near one of these. Um, One of the things that I find fascinating from this is that once he gets going, the back end of the dog is actually moving in a different direction than the front end of the dog. This travels down the body like a wave form and reflects off the back end and comes back up. Um, so in all of that havoc going on there's actually some interesting physics happening as well um, and certainly most of us can identify have been have, to having been somewhere in the effective kill radius of an event like that at some point in the past. So I guess I'll pretty much leave it there for today. Um, my details in terms of email and things are up here. Um, the videos that you saw there were produced on phantom cameras. We've had the advantage of having support division research over the course of the last couple of years to lowness some high speed video cameras, which are pretty pricey pieces of equipment. And we hope to continue that relationship. And I want to give them a plug for uh, having a commitment to education. Um, again, I'm on a little bit more about trying to inspire the researchers of tomorrow than actually do much of the research myself anymore. So um, I think there is a place for. A balance of the technical understanding of what you're doing, and just that little bit of fun that keeps you going and makes you want to look at something new and different every day. Thanks for your time.
1: Thank you, Fred. That was absolutely fascinating. Um, I think, Fred, you said that, that um, you take photos of things that don't talk back. I think that <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> that's quite interesting. Uh, except maybe the dog. Uh, are there any questions? Sure.
2: That last nice
0: one with the, with the dog, is that that's all using video, it's not still cameras up and high-speed flash. Uh, the dog shaking was high speed video. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, now really high speed video is nothing more than a sequence of, of very short duration single pictures. There's really no such thing as a continuously moving image when you when you replace something. Film is the same way. There's a bunch of frames that you put together at a at a frequency that's above the critical flicker rate for our perception. Of things. So all of those things are, are series, essentially, of still images. You could take that video apart and extract any one of those images and see what's going on at a certain point in time. And in many cases, for analysis purpose, that's exactly what they do. Um, when you start working with events, things like crack propagation in materials, that sort of stuff, um, the way materials fail, you're looking at, at pictures that have to be taken at framing rates of a million frames a second or more. Um, Now, when you do that, you don't take a full second of video because you have to go through a million frames to find what you're interested in. You're probably taking 16 pictures of something like that. So it happens very, very quickly. Um, Video has, in most cases, digital video has, in most cases, now taken over uh, for high-speed film cameras. Um, This used to be done with cameras that, that were specifically designed to Not only move film through the camera at a high rate, but also have a prism arrangement that actually moved the image and kept it in in sync with the moving film, because there's only so fast that you can actually move film through something before it starts to break. High-speed video has taken over for most of that and offers us some real advantages that we didn't have in the past, in that with the old cameras, if you put 100 feet of film into a high-speed camera, wanted to take something at 1,000 pictures a, a second, which from my standpoint, is for sissies. Um, <laughs> you would have to turn on the camera, give it about a second and a half or two seconds to come up to speed. You would have a second and a half of time when it was running at the speed. It was supposed to, then the film, would be gone. Done. And if you missed it, you missed it. One of the problems with film is it's not rewritable like memory cards are. Um, the video camera's now essentially write into a circular buffer, so you can now use the event itself to trigger the, uh, the camera the trigger signal that you're giving the cameras is essentially a stop signal rather than a start signal. So you put it in a record mode and you set it up so, okay, when the flea jumps and I see it and then I push the button, the camera stops and remembers all the stuff up to that point, which you could never do with a film camera before. Um, so it opens us up to be able to image kinds of things that we couldn't in the past. Um, um, but... Uh, uh, if you're looking at still images, um, then it comes down to an issue of the light sources because camera shutters can't move fast enough to freeze things, much faster than about a four or five thousandth of a second, realistically. Um, the shock waves that I've done here are actually made with an LED light source that is only a little three-watt source, but the camera has the capability to gate down to uh, one microsecond exposure times. So is
2: your blast wave, is that done using well, no, that was done with a still sound?
0: camera and a, uh, a very short duration flash, a very specialized flash unit that has a flash duration of about 5 microseconds, 5 one of a second. And the flash was actually triggered by the sound of the explosion itself. Um, so, as I say, I spend a lot of time in the basement, I work in dark rooms, we turn out all the lights, we open the camera, we let something trigger the flash, and that makes the picture.
2: Is it purpose built? scientific camera? Or is it just a no, scientific no, that's just, that's
0: just a Canon digital camera that anybody can buy. In fact, it's old now. i got a new one. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Just a comment. Um, putting, I know this is marvellous, but I want to make a plea for the capacity of the human brain to absorb information when it only has a split second, because I was a guinea pig, hopefully a control, at Birkbeck College when they were investigating the of brain-damaged people and they put something on the screen for just a flash and then they said what did you see and i i became quite
2: confident
1: that i only needed
0: a split second to to take it in Yeah. Well, the the, the photograph that i had up there the bullet going through the soap was made well it's actually just a shadow but it was made with a flash that was only on for a little less than a, than a microsecond a little less than a millionth of a second dark room again Um, But the persistence of vision on your retina is enough that when you know where to look and that flash goes off, I could actually see that bullet in flight. There was enough persistence there to see what... And that light had only been on for a millionth of a second, and I could still perceive what was happening. Now, had another light come on very shortly after that, I would have lost it. But you do have the ability to to see things that happen very quickly. We just can't resolve things when they happen in a sequence very quickly.
1: That's you know, why when something you don't even see something coming towards you, like when mm-hmm. you're you know, dropping wow. something or, or you're washing and soap, you know, it comes up the like surface of the water. You don't actually consciously recognize that something sees it, so you close your eye before it gets. It's kind of a similar sort of thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah, we can, we
1: can that There's a, not a conscious seeing, but something sees. Yeah.
0: You can have very quick rec- recognition. We just can't string things together. A couple of questions. <clears throat> what stopped the
1: bullet in your
0: experiment there? Um, we were shooting in a, a, a specialized uh, specialized gun tunnel. Essentially, it went down the end of a tunnel that nobody could walk down with a steel bullet trap and a big vat of sand. It wasn't your
1: standard lab.
0: No, it wasn't your standard That was not done here. That was done in the States a number of years ago. They won't let me play with bullets. well, <laughs> <laughs> that...
1: A bit concerned with
0: what's happening downstairs here
1: at RMIT. No. <laughs> my, my second question is have you tried if you're interested in photographing turbulence, have you tried photographing the turbulence coming off say hair dryer? Yes. Or uh, heat, body heat coming off in front of a telescope, a, a reflecting telescope tube, which you know it's um, quite amazing because we always tell people get my headline and they're saying well, your heat is disturbing the objects in the view.
0: I, I haven't I haven't done that, but there have been studies using this, this Schleren technique that shows that, that, that sort of heat bloom, where they actually look at how long it takes a telescope mirror to cool, okay. um, because you'll have that waft of air rising over the front of the mirror, which distorts the image. And it's amazing how long it actually takes that slab of glass to cool down to give you a good clear image. So I haven't done things with the telescope mirrors. I've done things like hair dryers. I'm interested in little puffs of, of gas coming out the ends of pipes and things, because some of the, the vortices and structures that are created out of there are actually quite beautiful. This is another
1: question, but you, you, you said that you, you're, not, you're an artist, you designed that, that sort of label for yourself, and yet you keep referring to a fair interest in
0: I'm not saying that that's not artistic, I'm saying no. I'm not really the artist, I'm just the observer yeah, but you're
1: making choices and that,
0: that's where <laughs> we could get into a very long winded <laughs> philosophical discussion over this one and I was looking at some of
1: these uh, if they were in a different context and framed differently it, they wouldn't People would
2: discount the scientific aspect and just look at the aesthetic. It would be- yes. Sir. Yeah. I'm actually a judge of the Eureka um, photographic prizes in the last three years, and the way they're judged is they're judged 20% on technical ability, 30% on um, impact, and 50% on the scientific message that they convey. So it's not so much about. I mean, you get get this is the distilled 25 out of about 150. And the other judges include um, heads of photographic schools and photographers that are journalists of the age and so on. I've actually known the scientists there before that are on the judging panel. So there's quite a lot of discussion and argy that goes on, but at the end of the day, they have to convey just a one-dimensional science message. Like, there's lots of images people submit that might be just a photograph of a beetle or a flower or something. It might be a great photograph, but it's just this is a thing, you know. So most of the images here have, 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 have got layers of complexity of multiple scientific messages attached to them. But the lay non-scientist
1: doesn't say that. If you, if you took those, blew them up, framed them differently, took off all the text, put them out there, or at the end of it, you know, spread the screen, yeah. it would be completely different. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the story yeah. is part of the judging.
2: Yeah.
0: Part of the journey. yeah. yeah. You know, I'll take this moment to sort of pop out my chest a little bit to say that One 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 of my students is a finalist in this year's Eureka Prizes, and I'm very, very proud of it. Uh,
2: Announced
0: tomorrow. I'm just
2: wondering about the hardware side of the site using all the camera before. How accessible is it in this process? Is it something, are any of these
0: techniques? Um, it really comes down to the, 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 the hard part is the light source, and you can get down to probably uh, flash durations on the order of a 50,000th of a second or so with, with small camera-mounted flashes if you turn the power down from them. Now, they're not very bright. But if you're looking at small events and you're working up close, you can get down to probably uh, time frames of about a 50,000th of a second, 60,000th of a second, somewhere in there. When you start looking at things that are happening on the order of a 200,000th of a second, a millionth of a second, those require some pretty sophisticated and specialized light sources. There is one particular flash that's out there that is actually only $3,000 and has a flash duration of about 500 nanoseconds. Um, so it's extremely short. Um, unfortunately, they haven't got an export license to sell it out of the US because the people over on that side of the big water are a little bit paranoid about anything you can use to study ballistics. So it um, stays in the country. Um, and high-speed cameras, the nature of the high-speed camera that we're using for, for example, the shockwaves here is about 80,000 US dollars. Um, and that's not their top-of-the-line camera anymore. If, if RMIT said, here's a check, buy what you want, um, it would probably be about 140 $140,000 US for the camera I would want now. So yes, there is some of this that's, that's a little bit out of your reach, but you can do actually do some very nice things with small portable flash units turn back on the power and a, a uh, simple digital camera using an open shutter technique and the flash as the shutter to capture the event. Yes? Uh, you mentioned
1: recording space in 5
0: Um, This one was done actually through a filter array that's, uh, the light that's illuminating that is coming through a segmented filter with red, green, and blue filters in it. Um, And then down on the business end, the camera and cutoff end, I've actually got a circular aperture that controls the amount of light coming through. And the position of that aperture sort of controls the overall color balance of the image by how much blue, how much red, how much green it lets through. Um, and again the the colors in that particular image are are subjective they can be to some extent diagnostic because they tell me something about the direction that the light has been bent but in that case they're probably there more for a little bit of the aesthetic value than they are for any diagnostic value Um, where does the uh, look there's there's a billion websites out there that deal with uh, high speed photography, uh, still photography for events like water drops and splashes and things like that um, if you search on Google for just high-speed photography, you'll certainly find those. High-speed video is a little harder to come by because the equipment is fairly pricey. Um, in order to engage with that, um, you know, if you've got any uh, any particular questions, you're welcome to dash me off an email at any point. I, I try as much as possible to. Um, Engage with the community, and, and uh, the university is a place of education, not just for the people that are enrolled, but we have a, 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 an obligation to the community at large to try to, to, to help out as much as possible. So I'm happy to field emails from people. We don't run a short course in this. Um, and since the events only last a millisecond, I guess it'll be, be a very short course.
1: Thank you very much, Fred. Thank you. For... Fred.